great to be here with you this evening. And um, I'd like to thank uh, Rupert for his very warm introduction and uh, welcoming. We were having some dinner earlier, trying to remember when we first encountered each other. I think it was about 15 years ago. And uh, I think at that point he was in transition to this place, or just moved. And it, I think, goes to say something about the kind of person he is. He, he, uh, we were doing a student week, um, and we were looking at what are the questions that were most frequently being asked at that time. And so when he asked to come, we sort of wrote back, pointing out that technically he wasn't a student, uh, and the next youngest person present would probably be about 20 years old. Uh, and his response was, no, he said, I really want to come and just mingle with these students from right across the country and just listen to the kinds of questions they're asking and what you're saying in response. Um, and we've just stayed in touch ever since then. And every so often he allows me to come and speak here and then um, cleans up the message, uh, mess after I've gone. Um, I'm going to, I'd like to share a few thoughts with you if I can. Um, we're going to be looking very briefly at the book of Jonah together. And so if you have it, uh, please open it. If you want to have a look at it on your phone, please do. It's always fascinating, isn't it? We can now read the Bible on the same device we order pizza with. Um, uh, and we're just going to try and start and ask a few questions. And I'm hoping that as we have a little look at this book and a little bit of the culture we're in, you'll begin to see maybe how these, why it is that I've, I've chosen to share some opening remarks with you out of that. I'm going to try and, if at all possible, speak a little bit shorter than Rupert announced. That could be making a rod from my own back. Um, in order to allow as much time for questions as possible, because I would really love the opportunity to interact with you. And uh, I'm always fascinated to hear what, what questions are. Let me say also just a few words about me so you know a little bit about where I'm coming from. Um, uh, I, was, I spent most of my childhood growing up in the Middle East. Um, uh, I have mixed uh, parentage. Um, I was born here in the UK. We moved off to the Middle East in the 70s uh, when I was very, very small. So all of my childhood memories are from that part of the world. Um, uh, we ended up in a place called Saudi Arabia. Uh, I was living in Riyadh. Um, I grew up with no Christian input whatsoever. My parents weren't Christians. I wasn't in a Christian culture. You organize a meeting like this in Saudi Arabia, that's a crime punishable by death. Uh, they remove your head with an axe. Uh, this is a very effective deterrent, no repeat offenders. Uh, and I grew up hearing nothing about uh, the Christian gospel as a result. Um, at the age of 16, my parents moved to Cyprus. And to cut a very long story short, I met a Christian who really intrigued me. Someone suggested there should be a group for teenagers. I thought this was a brilliant idea. Um, Cyprus is a bit of a sleepy island in many ways. I got myself into trouble and having sunk my father's car in a river and then accidentally set fire to a cinema. But those are two stories which are for another time. <laughs> this idea of a youth group sounded like a good idea. Um, and uh, we convinced someone to set it up. And we brought our friends to it and discovered it was going to be some kind of Christian thing. We had no idea the guy who's planted the idea we should have a youth group was a Christian or that the guy he suggested we speak to was a Christian. Um, but we pressurized him, my brother and I, two non-Christians, to set up this group, brought our friends and thought, oh, this is a Christian thing. But it was interesting. and We liked it. We could ask questions. And he welcomed all kinds of questions. After six months, uh, I, I was, went to one of these meetings. We met every week. And I could see he looked a little downcast. I said, Bob, you... Don't look your normal self. He said, well, I'm feeling frustrated. I've been trying to arrange to take all of you guys away for a weekend, but all of the camps, the campsites that you could go to, they're under the control of the government. And uh, they couldn't get permission, basically. I said, that's not a problem. We have connections. I said, uh, what do you need? And he said, well, we need permission from the chief of police and the minister for interior, and it's very difficult. You know, both of them have said no. 
So I went home that evening. I said to my mother, do you know, happen to know who the chief of police is? She said, of course. When I was 15, he invited me out on a date with him. Your Uncle George knocked out his two front teeth and said if he ever spoke to me again, he would kill him. I said, well, we need his permission. My mother rings him up. He immediately apologizes because he doesn't want to offend our family. Our family is a special kind of family. And um, he said, I didn't want to offend the family. If I knew it was your son and he was connected to the family, I would have said yes straight away. So my mother hangs up the phone. He says, the chief of police says yes. What else do you need? I said, do you know the minister for interior? She said, of course. Uh, he was on holiday in France, I think. You know, but a couple, of years later, a couple of hours later, when he found who was ringing, he faxed his written permission to release the camp. And a little while after that, I went up a day early to help set up this camp. We brought about 60, 70 people to the camp. And on the second day of that camp, I became a Christian. So God basically had me organize and plan my own conversion, which, if nothing else, goes to show he has a sense of humor. And uh, maybe that at times we simply don't trust God to be doing enough in other people's lives, even if we, even if we can't see it. So, instrumental to me in becoming a Christian was meeting a group of people who took enough time to actually find out what I was actually thinking and going on in my own heart and life. Now, what I find very interesting about the book of Jonah is, in one sense, it's one of the most unlikely books, stories you would expect to find in the Bible. So the book of Jonah doesn't start in a very common way. A lot of prophetic literature starts this way, including biblical literature. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Um, that's a phrase you're going to read a lot. What doesn't generally happen is what happens next. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because of its wickedness has come against me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. So he runs away. So Jonah hears the word of the Lord. God speaks to him. And he does the exact opposite of what God told him immediately. He runs away. And the question is, why? Is he scared? Is he frightened? Is he, what is it? Well, you find the answer in chapter 4. In chapter 4, Jonah tells God why he was quick to run away. If you remember the story, Jonah gets put in a boat. There's a big storm. He gets thrown into the water. The storm gets stilled. He's followed by a giant fish. That's the part that some theologians feel is a little bit fishy. He gets vomited up onto a beach. After this dramatic experience, he decides he'll go after all. He preaches, and every man, woman, and child in the city is saved. 120,000 people. I'm not sure what the population of Cambridge is, but I'm pretty sure if you saw 120,000 people saved because you preached one very short message, you would be telling that story for the rest of your life. So Jonah sees the greatest recorded revival in Scripture occur. He sees more people become turned to the Lord in a very short period of time, then, then it's just, it's unprecedented. And what is his emotional reaction? Well, when God forgives everyone, we read what his reaction is. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, that God had just forgiven them. And he became angry. This is where the English translation doesn't do it quite enough justice. The word angry here means to be so angry you could physically throw up. It is a hard phrase to translate out of the Hebrew. It means you could, be, you could physically vomit. I don't know if you've ever been that angry, that upset about something. It could literally make you sick. That's how angry he is. So he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? And this is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. What is, so Jonah now is saying, this is, so I, here's why I ran away. This is why I tried to stop you, God. And he's about to explain to God why he's angry, why he hates him, and why he runs away. Have you, you want to hear what Jonah's complaint is about the God of the Old Testament. You're about to hear it. 
I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah is angry with the God of the Old Testament because he's too gracious, too kind, too compassionate, and he loves forgiving people. Now, I'm only making this point in passing because some people think the God of the Old Testament is a God who specializes in wrath and the God of the New Testament specializes in love, like he has some kind of big PR makeover or something like that. Um, But this particular theological objection can be overcome through the complex process known as reading. You will read about God's love and judgment in both parts. He's the same. So why is Jonah so angry, so angry, that God is forgiving? Why did he run away? That's the question we're going to try and answer. Now, interestingly, God asks him, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah's so angry he doesn't speak. And a little while later in chapter 4, God says, and next time, Jonah, is it right for you to be so angry about a plant? Because God makes a plant grow over Jonah's head that then dies. And Jonah says, it is right, and I'm so angry I could die. Now, I don't think we can explain the strength of Jonah's emotional reaction due to some form of militant vegetarianism. There is something else going on here. Jonah maintains his anger to the face of God right to the end of this book. We have no idea what happens to Jonah at the end of the book of Jonah. God says to him, look at all the people, look at all the animals. Should I not care for them? Should I not have compassion? Should I not forgive them? And then the story ends. What, how does Jonah respond? Well, there's a classic Hollywood version. I actually quite like classic Hollywood versions. Happy ending. Jonah turns to God, God, you're right, I'm sorry, thank you for putting up with me. I like that version. Then there's also the French classic version ending, where everybody ends in misery and kills themselves. But whichever way it goes, it's it leaves a very big answered question, which is what on earth happens to Jonah? And we can speculate a bit about that if you want to. But the question is, why is Jonah so angry? What on earth is going on? How do we understand it? So what makes the book of Jonah interesting, if you believe in God, is that Jonah's, is, is at the source of Jonah's problem isn't that he doubts God's existence. Jonah has no doubts about God's existence. Jonah is angry with God's moral character. And most Christians and most non-Christians' ultimate struggle with God is moral. God, are you right? Are you good? Are you just? Do you do the right thing? Can I trust you? Most Christians' biggest wrestle with God is moral. And most non-Christians' wrestle with God is moral. You read almost any leading atheistic critique of God today and it's questioning God's moral character. Go and have your hair cut, find a nice atheistic barber or hairdresser to cut your hair, and if they don't ask, believe in God, ask why, I can almost guarantee it's going to be moral. How can you expect me to believe in God when? So God is angry because, Jonah is angry because he has this question. So this is what makes Jonah quite unusual in the book of the Old Testament. In all the way through the Bible, people run away from God. Adam and Eve run away, run away from God. God comes into the garden, they run away and hide. But Adam and Eve run away from God and hide because they know they have done something wrong. Jonah runs away from God and tries to hide because he thinks God has done something wrong. Do you see the difference? He is utterly convinced God is wrong. And he maintains his moral objection and therefore his self-righteous anger against God all the way 
through the book of Jonah. It's really quite remarkable. Now, what is going on? Well, let me jump to another track for a moment if I can. About a year ago, I was speaking at a conference, and as I was getting ready to speak, I, was, I read this story, and it must be true because I was reading it in the Times. And it was the story of a university student, and um, she was up in the north of um, the UK, and she was at a debate for the no no local National Union of Students, or, or for that region. And she was being criticised, this student, because she had been attacked for having a position on something. Someone had published a public letter against her, and she was being criticised for not responding. Why hadn't she responded? And so, what she did is she raised her hand to make a point of order. What she wanted to say was, look, I have tried to respond to the attack on me, but instead of doing it publicly in the press, I've been trying to reach out to them privately. I've been trying to, you know, just, I've contacted them personally. I wrote to them personally saying, can we meet? I've decided not to publish in the press. I want, I want to talk to them. Now, because she raised her hand, a motion was started to have her rejected from the debating chamber. Why? Well, the National Union of Students had decided that the debating chamber needed to be a safe space. And in order to make sure it was a safe space, they banned any form of hand gesture that could denote disagreement. Because if someone disagrees with you, you're no longer safe anymore. So by raising her hand in the chamber to make the point, it was clear she had a hand gesture which made it clear she was disagreeing with the person who was speaking on the other side. So therefore, she should be ejected from the debating chamber in order to protect and preserve the safe space. It's interesting, isn't it? A little while after I read that story, I came across one that I liked, well, I want to say liked even more. Um, that's not quite right. Um, but some of you may remember a couple of years ago, there was a, an Australian lady who's had her entire life here in the UK called Jermaine Greer. Any of you heard of her? Very well-known writer, feminist thinker, brilliant. Read what she has to say. Now, Jermaine Greer made a few comments about transgenderism. I'm not going to repeat what she said. She used lots of four-letter words that, as a Christian, I'm not allowed to use. Although, if I were to use them as Christians, you'd be forced to forgive me. <laughs> and I'm not happy with the way in which she expressed herself. I wouldn't advise anyone to express what she said in the way in which she expressed it. I don't think it had any form of sensitivity. But she said what she said, and as a result it was decided that she shouldn't be allowed to speak at British universities anymore. So she was no platform by the NUS. Now, after she was no platform, a guy called Peter Tatchell, anyone know who that name is? Um, Peter Tatchell's been campaigning for gay rights and gay marriage in the UK, I think, since the 80s. Um, so one of Britain's longest-running, well-known gay rights campaigners, Rich Peter Tatchell held a press conference in which he said, Jermaine Greer should not be allowed should, should not be banned from speaking. She's a well-known academic. She should be allowed to speak, and you should go along and disagree with her. And if you're not happy with what she says, ask her difficult questions, make a counter-argument, but don't prevent her from speaking in the first place. At which point, the NUS started a debate to have Peter Tatchell no-platformed for, amongst other things, being homophobic. Now, how is it possible for Peter Tatchell, so well-known for campaigning for gay rights to come across as homophobic. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, after they passed a motion to no-platform him, another quietly, softly-spoken man by the name of Richard Dawkins, he held a press conference with the BBC in which, using a lot of similar four-letter words that Jermaine Greer used, let it be known about what he thought about the intellectual capacity of a group of students who could look at Peter Tatchell 
and consumed that this was one of his problems. He was homophobic. Because of the press conference, a motion was tabled to have Richard Dawkins no platformed for not speaking at universities. At that point, a guy called, oh, come on, um, Brian, who's the guy who's on TV a lot now about science, the jazz, the musician, Brian Cox, he held a press conference with the BBC saying that maybe it wasn't a good idea to no platform someone like Professor Richard Dawkins from speaking at British universities. He obviously isn't here, but he's at a reasonable university. And, you know, maybe he should be allowed to speak. Maybe he has something to say. What on earth is going on? Now, the reason why I've picked these examples to open with is very often as Christians, when the culture shifts and we feel the force of it, we think everything's directed against us. What I'm about to describe to you isn't something that's directed against Christians at all, although we feel the effect of it. It affects everybody. It's probably one of the largest global shifts in culture that we have seen for a very seriously long time. Now, I can't answer this question for you, but what amazes me is that now having the opportunity to talk about this subject in China, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, the Middle East, Africa, Asia, um, Europe, UK, North America, that it doesn't matter where you go, people relate to this, which is strange, because there's no common history between all of those different countries. Why is it that we will have so many stories like this, regardless of what country we're in? What on earth is going on? When we classically think about culture, we tend to think about culture often using a series of words, a series of models, a series of paradigms, if you like. We sometimes talk about honor cultures. In honor cultures, the way we respond to attack is with honor. We look for it in our leaders, we look for it in, our, in, in people around us, we encourage it in our children. The thing we value and esteem is honor. And what gives you status, what gives you standing is honor. You conduct yourself with honor, you act honorably, people look up to you. Now, in dignity-based cultures, it's slightly different. In an honor-based culture, you earn status by acting honorably. In a dignity-based culture, the argument's different. The argument is, no, 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 I don't have to earn your respect. You should respect me because of who I am. And actually, what we really value is dignity. Now, in an honor-based culture, if you attack someone, they have to publicly defend themselves. But in a dignity-based culture, you may be publicly attacked and not respond. You may elect to say nothing publicly. You may take the person who's attacked you aside, quietly, sit them down and say, what's going on? And maybe later, hopefully, come out from that room and say to everybody, it's all fine, everything's settled now, let's move on. And that would be seen as a dignified response. And what we value in our leaders, what we want to install in our children, is they act with dignity. Now, many cultures blend those two together. Does that make sense? We have a sense of honor, we have a sense of dignity, and there's, there's, a, there's a combination. What unites them together, however, is that if you have a problem, you have to respond appropriately. So, for example, in an honor culture, in a dignity culture, if someone attacks you, you don't go crying off to daddy to help. That's not honorable. That's not dignified. And almost every country of the world will have historical books telling stories of a prince who's spoiled rotten, and every time something bad happens to him, he goes crying off for daddy to help. But the whole point of the story is no one respects him. If it has a happy ending, the Hollywood version, he learns his lesson, he grows up into himself, does that make sense? And he now acts differently. If he doesn't, he's the spoiled despot, and you hope he'll be thrown out, and someone nicer will come and replace him. So in honor and dignity-based cultures, you don't make appeals to other people to sort out your problems all the time, not if they're trivial. 
And you certainly don't go around boasting about the amount of pain and suffering you're in. Does that make sense? You just don't. It's not honourable. It's not dignified. If I were to stand here and tell you all the horrible and terrible things that Rupert Chakram did to me, you know, the substandard meal that I was served, the lack of welcome, the cold weather he's put on, it's just not dignified, is it? It doesn't sound good, even though it's true. No, no, anyway. (laughs) We don't do that. However, we are increasingly living in a, what I, it's a term I don't like, we are, but we are increasingly living in something that people call a victim-based culture. Now, what's that about? Well, in a victim culture, you get status, you get standing, because of all of the historical or current grievances that you have. So the more pain you've been through, the more discrimination you've suffered, the more historical wrongs you've been through, and so on, the more standing, the more status you have. Now, what you then do is you then begin to think that, look, the rules that apply to everyone else shouldn't really apply to me because I'm now special. So I need something special from everybody else. Now, what happens after that becomes very interesting. Once you are convinced that what defines you is that you are a victim, is you end up with a mentality that goes something like this. I'm a victim. Everything I do and everything I say to you is only motivated by love. But if any of you disagree with me, that's only explicable through hate. Let's take good old Peter Tatchell. He disagreed with someone. But if the person he disagrees with is gay, well, let's run the narrative. Everything I do is explicable only through love. Everything you do, if you disagree with me, is only explicable through hate. This is what I did. He hates me. He must be homophobic. It's an interesting chain of logic, isn't it? What it means is you end up with a very dichotomous thinking where everybody is either oppressed or an oppressor. And the question is, which one are you? Are you part of the oppressed or are you one of the oppressors? Because those are the two options that you have. So it means we all want to claim victim status, to have standing. Has anyone here seen the original Superman movie? Does anybody even know who the original Superman was, apart from Rupert? Look at this. Well, if you've seen the original Superman, and I were to ask you the question, what were Superman's weaknesses? Well, apart from kryptonite, the answer is nothing. Morally, perfect. Watch the 1980s version. Rationally, perfect. Physically, perfect. Very much like me in that respect. (laughs) He's just brilliant at every level. Flawless as a character. Perfect. Have any of you seen the new Superman movie, Man of Steel. Has anyone seen Man of Steel but is too embarrassed to admit that they watch superhero movies? If you watch that movie, how does the, how does the story start? Superman is on a boat in the middle of a storm, angry. He doesn't know who he is. He feels po- cosmically abandoned, cosmically lonely, cosmically bereft. No one knows him. He didn't ask for this responsibility anyway. People are looking to him for something he feels he can't deliver and he wants to simply disappear. For Superman to be a hero today, he must have a victim narrative. Which is why if you take almost any soap opera that you watch on television, almost any film you've seen, the hero must be a victim. They must have a victim narrative, even if they're superheroes. So I find it fascinating that we live in a world filled where everybody's watching superheroes, apart from apparently in this church. 
And yet all of those superheroes, to have status, to have standing, for us to respect them, admire them, look up to them, all of them have a victim narrative to determine and tell us who they are. doesn't matter if they're male or female or whatever, they all have the same narrative. It's what we're looking for, is how we get status. Now what's interesting about this is that once you begin to divide society this way, the only person who's allowed to speak about your group, if you're part of a group, is you. No one outside is allowed to say anything about your group. They're not allowed to do that. If you want to join someone else's group, my group of victims, because I'm half Greek Cypriot and our country has been conquered by successive series of empires and is now the last divided capital in the world, so I've got at least two and a half thousand years of historical victimhood. And the other part of me grew up in the Middle East, and if you know anything about Middle Eastern politics, there's a lot of grievance there too. So I'm doing pretty well on this front. I've got thousands of years of grievances piled up here. If someone wants to join my group, they have to make my complaint more strongly and more vociferously than me. And if you do that, you can join my group. But if you disagree with me, you get expelled out of my group immediately because clearly you do not love me, you only join me because you hate me and you're only pretending to like me in the first place. Well, this causes a problem. It means that political leaders around the world right now, if they're running for office, they do the maths. They calculate how many victim groups there are in their society. They count up how many people are in each of those groups. And they advocate their complaint more vociferously and more militantly than them. And if they get it right, they'll win. Any of you recognize this at all? Which is why... If I were to ask you, who are the statesmen, who are the stateswomen today, you would find it very hard to answer. 30, 40 years ago, you went to any country and you say, who are your statesmen, who are your statewomen, who are the people who are bigger than politics? There'll be a list of names, not a huge list, but you could reel them off. But if I were to say today, who's bigger than the immediate political debates in the country from which you're from? You're going to struggle to even come up with one name. Because the way statesmen operate is very different. They tend to step into a room and they say, you know what? What you're doing is, what happened to you is wrong. And that injustice you suffered, that is wrong. And we have to deal with that. But that doesn't justify you doing this terrible thing to this group over here. You're also wrong to do that. Which is why they're bigger than the circumstances. You've been wronged. I need to help you. I will help you. But what you're, the way you're responding is also wrong. And you need, to, you need to deal with that. In the absence of those voices, you get an increasing vortex of grievance that spirals down where everyone is competing with itself about who can be, who's got, the biggest, who's got the biggest amount of hurt. Now, in order for a victim culture to work, you need a real sense of injustice. That make sense? Things need to go wrong. There need to be real injustices. The question is, how do we respond? How do we respond to when we see injustice being perpetuated. I want to be careful how I, how I phrase this, so do bear, bear with me with this, with this point. Let's suppose you've suffered a terrible injustice, something which is completely one-sided and totally not your fault. Let's suppose, male or female, doesn't matter what group, who you are, you're walking home, someone stalks you back, hits you over the head and rapes you. 
Now, that's going to affect you in all kinds of ways. Normally, you go into counselling. The purpose of the counselling, however, is normally very carefully directed. What the counsellor is normally trying to say to the person who's been affected is, look, what happened to you is wrong and what happened is terrible. But you can't allow this to define who you are and you can't allow this to dictate your future. If you allow what happened to you to define who you are and to dictate your future, the terrible thing this person did to you is even greater. They were achieving an even greater victory over you. Don't do it. So at the very least, we want to try to put someone on a parallel track. They may have to live with the pain and the consequence of that all of their lives. They may never fully be able to move beyond it. But we're trying to say this doesn't define who you are. This is not your identity. And it doesn't have to dictate your future. It can be different. Don't allow it to do that. But in a victim culture, if you get your status from all the terrible things that have happened to you, the culture is encouraging you to hang on to it. So it does define who you are. And it does dictate your future. What on earth has this got to do with the book of Jonah? Any of you asking that question yet? Most of you even forgot when I started. Most of you are praying that I'll be finishing soon. Jonah lives at the time of the Assyrian Empire. If you know anything about the ancient world, you will know that the Assyrian Empire was considered to be one of the most evil empires that's ever lived on the face of the planet. Some people would make a case it was the most evil empire we have ever seen in human history. What they did was unbelievably unspeakable. They invented new types of horror, new types of pain, new types of torture, oppression. They were incredibly brutal and oppressive. And they are against Jonah and his country. So the Assyrians are doing terrible and awful things. Absolutely awful. Huge injustices are taking place. And they are destroying everything before them. And God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is in Assyria, where their great evil has come before me and tell me that I am against them and I'm going to judge them. Now, I want you to just close your eyes for a minute and imagine the following. Imagine the person you hate the most. And imagine God personally appearing to you and saying, I'm sending you on a mission to that person to tell them how evil and wrong they are. Now, how do you feel? Be honest. Someone said, fabulous. Could you imagine God coming to you saying, the great evil of this person has stacked up so high it's reached heaven itself and I am sending you to tell them how wrong they are and that my judgment's coming against them. You think that would put a skip in your step, don't you think? Imagine having divine endorsement for how you feel about them. So why is Jonah angry? Because that's what happens to Jonah. The people he hates the most, God comes to and says, Jonah, I have a word for you. You go to them, you tell them how evil they are, and you talk to them about my coming judgment. And Jonah gets angry with God. Why? Well, we know why. We just read it in chapter 4. Jonah knows that God loves forgiving people. He specializes in it. Gracious, compassionate, loving, a God who, is, who doesn't send calamity. Jonah doesn't want the Assyrians to repent. Jonah wants the Assyrians destroyed. That's what he wants. I'm sure you've never felt this way about a person or a group of people. But it can happen. When you're watching a movie and you've got the good guys and the bad guy people, 
and they're fighting each other. How do, what do you want to happen to the bad person or people at the end of the movie? Do you want them caught, put on trial, and sent to jail? Be honest. You do? Most of us want something a bit more than that. Most of us want them to die. Because that's what they deserve, right? How do you want them to die? Would you like them to trip on their shoelaces, fall in front of a bus, and smack, get run over, and they didn't see it coming? No, that's not enough, is it? They have to know they're going to die. They have to appreciate they're going to die. They have to die slowly, and then they have to die. Those what we want. We want, we want revenge. Have any of you seen Goldeneye? Do any of you watch James Bond movies? Let's start there. Put up your hand. Don't be ashamed. If you watch James Bond movies, put up your hand. Shame on you. <laughs> you shouldn't be wasting your time with all of that rubbish. I only watch movies because I do cultural research and analysis. Now, what happens at the end of every James Bond movie? James Bond is about to die. Of course, that never happens. There's the great reversal. So, have you seen Goldeneye, for example? Any of you seen that movie? Okay, the way Goldeneye ends is James Bond is fighting with the bad guy. And there's this huge lake, massive lake, and it drains to reveal a huge concrete dish, hundreds of meters across, probably 150 meters deep, and suspended across the, the bowl with little metal wires, there's a large metal spike, and it's a radar. It's controlling a satellite in space. And where are they fighting? On the metal spike in the middle of that radar array. So James Bond is trying to kill the bad guy which we all want him to do, but it looks like James Bond's going to die. And then the position turns around, and now the bad guy's hanging on by his fingernails, and James Bond's confused, thinking, well, I'm an English gentleman. Do I save him, or do I kill him? And the guy loses his grip, and he starts falling to the earth. Do you remember this scene? You see him falling. You have a, like a camera attached to that metal needle looking down to earth, and you see the guy falling backwards. Ah, like that. So he's screaming all the way down, and he's getting smaller. Then you have a camera from the ground looking up. You hear the scream, but now the body's getting bigger as it's coming down. Then you have a wide-angle view. So you can see the body going all the way down. Then you have another view from the top of the needle, that big metal spike looking down. He's getting even smaller and smaller. He's still screaming. Then you've got the view from the ground. You can see his body is now rushing towards the ground with great force. Then you have the wide-angle camera. And the way that camera shot ends is all of a sudden he wears smack and he lands on the back of his head at the bottom of the dish. Is he dead? Now, it's amazing. I'm not medically trained in any way, shape, or form. But I have a sneaky suspicion if you fall 150 meters and land on your head on a concrete surface, you will die. Is he dead? Oh, no. He opens his eyes just in time to see a massive explosion release the needle directly above his head. And now the giant metal needle that he was clinging onto for support comes rushing down towards him. You have a view from the needle getting closer and closer to the guy's head, and you can now see him screaming with his mouth wide open as it gets closer. You have a view from his eyes looking up straight into space from the ground, and you can see the thing getting bigger. Then you have the wide-angle shot, so you can see the body and the head and the needle coming down, and the whole thing goes, and he gets skewered through his mouth into the ground. Now, I remember in the city I was living in when that was like premiered, when that happened, everyone in the auditorium stood up and started clapping like this. Isn't it interesting how often we talk about justice but what we actually want is revenge? It's one of the reasons why we struggle with God's sense of justice. We think he must mean that's what it means. Jonah doesn't want the Assyrians forgiven. He wants them destroyed. And Jonah understands something 
that a lot of people get confused. The, the message that Jonah is asked to preach that about God's judgment, it, that, that phrase there, it can, be, it can literally mean, it, most translations actually today translate it overthrown, overturned. Do you have, so if some of you are reading that in your Bible, the message Jonah is given, 40 more days and you will be overthrown. Now the word in Hebrew literally means to turn something upside down. So if you go into a city and you turn it upside down, it means you've caused havoc. If someone said to Rupert tomorrow, how did it go with Michael? And he'd say, well, he came and spoke to us and he turned everything upside down. Most people would think that's probably not a good idea. So it can mean to be destroyed. Does that make sense? Just to completely wipe. But that exact phrase is used in a slightly different way too. In Deuteronomy 23 verse 5, for example, God says, Behold, because I love you, I have turned this curse into a blessing. And that word turned, it's literally overturned, it's the exact same phrase. God says, because of my love for you, and you were under a curse, I've now overthrown it, I've reversed it, it's now a blessing. So after Jonah goes and speaks to the Assyrian people and says, 40 more days and you'll be overthrown, and he goes and sits on a hill to wait and see what happens, he's hoping, smack. But what happens? Everyone turns to God, they're all forgiven, and Jonah is mad. Because it's not what he wanted. It's very interesting as Christians, when we come into this setting like this, and we're thinking about a life course, about what we may do, how we engage with other people, it's so easy as Christians to fall into the same set mindset as Jonah. The amazing thing about the book of Jonah is Jonah is a prophet. He hears God's voice audibly. He's sent by God to go and do something he doesn't want to do. He does it even though he doesn't really want to do it. And then God does it anyway. If there is anyone who ever felt, to, ever felt that they are a reluctant evangelist, Jonah has something to teach you. In a culture where everyone seems to simply want revenge and bring everyone down, the gospel has an incredibly powerful message, and it's about forgiveness. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking at a conference for um, uh, 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 sort of missionaries and workers doing evangelism from about 40 different countries in Europe, and they held their conference in the northern part of Cyprus. Now, my family, my, the Greek side of my family, is from the southern part of Cyprus. If you were rich and wealthy, you had all of your money in the land in the north, and in the south, it was very poor. So it was the northern part that was rich. After Turkey came and there was a big fight, the capital city, Nicosia, is divided. It's the last divided city, capital city in the world. And everyone who had land in the north lost it. So I'm now speaking on a piece of land that could well be owned by my family, okay, on which there's now a lovely five-star hotel, talking to one and a half thousand missionaries, including... Turkish Cypriots and people from Turkish mainland. And the question is, how do, I sh how do I feel about that? How am I going to respond and react? So having made a joke that I was entertaining them all on my land and I was very happy that they could come and meet on it, the question is really very simple. What's God's heart for these people? And the answer is, well, that they'll come to know him. They need to turn to him in repentance just as much as I do. And although I'm very happy to campaign on a point of law and justice and about whose land it is, 
how do I treat the people? And the answer is, well, with love, with, with respect. The world right now desperately needs a community of people, especially in a global victimhood culture, who learn what it is to forgive people who've wronged them, not to hang on to the bitterness and the pain, but to actually understand that there's a way through. I was speaking at a, a, an evangelistic meeting a little while ago, and um, every night, um, we did a series of five nights, and every night on the front row, a lady came and sat. And because she sat in the same seat every single night, always on the front row, after four nights, I, I, uh, thought, you know, I thought, you know, you begin to recognize who the people are. And every night, I said, look, if you'd like to pray with me to become a Christian, I'll invite you to stand where you are, and I'll, let's pray together. And every night, I thought she was going to stand up, and at the last minute, she didn't. So on the last night, I said, Lord, if she comes back again, help me recognize her. If she sits in the same seat, I'll try and talk to her after the meeting. She came back. Lots of people stood up. She didn't. And I sort of made my excuses from the front and went and just sat next to her. And I, I just said, excuse me, do you mind if I talk with you for a moment? And she said, no. I said, I, said, I think you've been coming here every night. She said, I have. I said, I, I may be misreading it, but every night it felt like you were going to stand up and you didn't. And she said, I've been trying to stand up on the inside. So I said, well, can I ask why? And then she said, if I become a Christian, do I have to forgive my grandfather who sexually abused me when I was 12 years old? So my question to her was, well, what does your therapist say? And she said, my therapist is telling me I need to hold on to my anger and my rage and like yell it. So I said, well, is it helping? And she said, no, it's making it worse. I said, I'm fearful about something. I said, the Bible talks about something called a root of bitterness. And all I know is if we hold on to that kind of bitterness, it doesn't affect the person who wronged us, it affects us. And it seems to me every time you remember what happened, you're paying the price all over again for what happened all those years ago. And it was just an incredible joy to sit down and pray with her. Does that mean the grandfather should be released of the legal consequences of what he's done? Absolutely not. But it does mean that inside she shouldn't keep paying over and over and over again for the wrong that was done to her. That's, not, that's even worse. The gospel brings in a very powerful message of forgiveness for all of us. And it asks us to extend it to everybody else. The trouble is, we often find it very hard to forgive. And we find it at times very hard to believe that God can forgive some people. A couple of years ago, I was in a country which I, I can't name. And um, <laughs> I was asked to speak to a group of people who, um, well, I won't name the country. I'll tell you the kind of people they were. I was asked to speak to a room that was basically filled with suicide bombers. And the guy who rang me, I said, you must be crazy. Why would I go there? And he said, well, I, I spoke to them, and I said, I'm going to come back with my friend and answer all of their questions. And I said to this guy on the phone, I said, well, who would be stupid enough to do that? And he said, you are my friend. <laughs> so what we agreed is we'll take someone with us who had a gun who would stay in the car. So when we were inside this particular building, he would stay with the vehicle to stop someone putting something in the car. That seemed like a sensible idea. And we went in and spoke. At the end of the meeting, after I talked about forgiveness, the head of this institution stood up and he said, well, it's totally different for us. If you respect us, we may respect you, but if you don't respect us, we will kill you. I said, well, it is very different. I said, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I uh, 
forgiveness just doesn't work like that. This is very different for us. Anyway, everyone stood up in the room, and as I left, various people dropped pieces of paper in my hand, tiny pieces of paper. They'd written their cell phone numbers and rolled them up. And quite a few of the people in that room who had been trained about how to make bombs that night gave their lives to Christ. So as we were driving back, my interpreter got a very angry phone call from the head of the institution because apparently that wasn't meant to happen. And he said, I'm going to go meet with him. So we went and met with him. And after he met, he came to me and he said, I said, what did you say to him? He said, they're really very angry with you, brother. I said, well, what have you suggested? He said, they're going to come to your meeting tonight and listen to you again. I remember thinking of all the most stupid things I've ever heard. That's probably the worst thing that you could say. When this particular group of people arrived and sat in the room, as I was speaking, there was one of them who was looking at me with such hatred. I've never experienced it before in my life. It was almost tangible. Sometimes people talk about a death stare. I imagine that's what they're referring to. It was, it was like you could touch it. It was like a physical thing. It was so strong, it was throwing me off from speaking. And so what I actually did is I actually turned this way and then turn my head that way. Does that make sense? So that even when I turned my head as far right as I could, I still couldn't see. There was only way. It was I had to block them out because it was just throwing me so much. When I finished speaking, it was, you know, I, had, I could leave either way, and I started to leave this way. And as I got to the first step, I just felt God say to me, Michael, I think you're a coward, which isn't the words of affirmation you want to hear from your Lord when you finish speaking. So I, I stopped, and I just turned around and started walking the other way and I walked up to the guy and held up my hand and I said I'm so happy to see you here tonight and was immediately convicted then for lying because that wasn't true either <laughs> and the guy took a step towards me and said listening to your gospel is like watching flowers grow in a barren field and then threw his arms around me and just started weeping there is no one who is beyond this redemptive power and love than Christ. Who are the people who you think are the least likely to turn and put their trust in Christ? Who are the people who cause you the most amount of pain and difficulty? You think, well, I could never imagine them. They would never do it because, well, God has a bit of a track record of reaching these people. The trouble is, is we don't even pray for these things to happen if we think God won't do it. And so out of this book, we begin to learn all kinds of things. How are we going to live differently in this culture? What are we going to do? And are we going to be different? The only way to break a cycle of victim culture is to learn to forgive. By loving someone and forgiving someone, you're not necessarily affirming them. As a matter of fact, by forgiving someone, you're not affirming them at all. If I forgive you, that means you've done something wrong and you need forgiveness, right? Have you noticed that? Which is why if you ever walk up to someone blank and say, I want you to know I'm prepared to forgive you, you may not necessarily get hugged. And by the way, I'm not suggesting you do that. But it's the only way to break the cycle. I want to say one last thing and then we'll throw it over for questions. And I did speak for 45 minutes after all, or more. There's one other thing which is fascinating in this story. Jonah is given very little. Well, sometimes we read the book of Jonah and we think, well, look, Jonah got swallowed by a giant fish, vomited up onto a beach. When he went to go and speak to the people, they must have been like. And Jonah says, guys, have I got a testimony for you? 
Well, he's thrown up on the beach about 600 miles from Nineveh. So it's highly unlikely that anyone was standing there at the time to see it happen. We have to assume that by the time he walked to that city, he may have taken a bath or several. And actually, what he preaches isn't a powerful testimony. And they don't even get to see the sign. They just get to hear the word the Lord gave him. The power of everything Jonah does is in the few words God gave him. Not in anything else. That's remarkable. Very often when we go into this world, we we often think, look, I'm just too small. I I can't make a difference. It's simply not possible. There's too little I have. There's a guy I work with, and who knows, maybe one time we should send him over here to come and talk to you. If you can listen to this guy speak and not get blessed, then your blesser is broken. Um, He's coming up for his 80s now, but for many, many, many years, he was a missionary in China. And he also... um, his family was one of the last families to be forcibly expelled from China when all of that happened a long time ago. Um, he ended up in Hong Kong. When he came back to Hong Kong, having studied overseas, he saw a lot of kids around, and he thought, someone needs to set up a camp to reach all of these kids. Now, this is a big guy, and he's got a big vision. So he came up, first of all, with a plan to buy a small island. He needed $250,000. He tried to raise it. Nothing happened. Then he found the ability to buy this massive strip of beach several miles long. Okay? Uh, it was going to cost him 250000 He tried to raise it. If he had raised it today, it would be worth billions. But he failed. He didn't get that either. Then he saw this, I think it was a boarding school. It was, everything was being completely misrun, but it was perfect. It had accommodation. It had a swimming pool, sports facilities, everything you would want to run summer camps for kids that have nowhere to go. And that day, he happened to be visited by somebody. Well, during that time, He was visited by someone who worked with an evangelist called Billy Graham. You may not have heard of him, but he was well-known a while ago. This was Billy Graham's right-hand person, very well-connected. And he hears about the vision, and he hears about what this guy wants to do, and he says, this is amazing. I'm going to go back to America, and I'm going to raise all the money you will need to buy the camp. And for the first time, he thinks, I'm in business. With my brains and American money, we can go a long way. Three months later, he gets a letter. He opens it. Inside the letter, there's another letter and a note. The note says, Dear John, the fundraising hasn't gone as well as I planned. I only received one donation from one person to help you buy the school, to turn it into a camp, and I've enclosed it herewith. He opens the second letter, and in the second letter, there's a note that reads, Dear Mr. Bechtel, I've heard about your vision and what you want to do. I've been saving up some of my pocket money and I want to send it with you so you can buy the camp. And in it is a $1 bill. Signed, Belinda Holmes, age 12. Now he was so angry when he received that letter, he was going to throw it into the bin. But his wife said to him, John, this girl's asking you to use her money to buy the camp, you should at least try. So he went to the caretaker And he said, I want to make an offer to buy this building. And he handed over the letter from the 12-year-old girl. The caretaker basically threw it back in his face and said, don't waste my time. And this is when it's useful to have fluent Chinese when you're in that culture. He speaks Cantonese and Mandarin and various other Chinese dialects. He basically pointed out to the caretaker that if the caretaker didn't sell him, pass on the offer to the board, he was in breach of law because he was legally obliged to pass on every offer, no matter how small, to the board. So they passed on the letter. Two weeks later, John gets a phone call 
from the board, meets with them, and at the end they say, this wasn't set up to do what it was intended to do, and we do recognize that, and we will now sell you this site for $1 to do what you're suggesting. 23 years later, John was speaking in a church in North America, and he told this story. At the end of the story, a 35-year-old woman came up to him and said, Mr. Bechtel, my name is Belinda Holmes, and I was the 12-year-old girl who sent you my pocket money all those years ago. And it was the first time she heard what her $1 had done. John spoke, there were some people still lingering around in the church, and he sent them out. He said, I want you to find everybody who's leaving the church right now and drag them back in. Because he told this story while he'd been preaching. So they dragged as many people back in as they could, and John now introduced them to the woman that they had just heard the story about. And he suggested that they take up a collection so she could go back to Hong Kong to see what her money had done. Well, apparently they raised enough money to send her and half of the British Army back to Hong Kong. And she finally got to see what she did. The tiny amount that we have in our hand, God can do incredible things with. The question is, are we really prepared to give it all over to him? God used Jonah, but Jonah still wasn't happy by the end of it. The really good news is he would love to use you too. And he would love you to rejoice in seeing what he can do with and through you, even if all you have in your hand is a dollar. The first time I ever heard John share that story, he put up a picture behind him. It's of the largest stadium in Hong Kong. It's an aerial photograph, and you can see the stadium filled and a group of people marching through the middle. All of the people in that stadium are people from Hong Kong who gave their lives to Christ through that camp. It's just incredible to think what God was able to do with it. What does he want to do with you? Will you hand over what you have to him? Let's just pray together. Father, I want to thank you for this time just to be able to be here with the people here. Lord, most importantly, more than anything else, our desire is to meet with you. Father, you know the kind of culture in which we live and the challenges we face. And Lord, you even know at times how we feel. Sometimes we feel more like Jonah than we care to admit. And so, Father, will you help us to see how graciously you deal with us, just as you dealt so graciously with Jonah. But Lord, will you help us to see and understand how much you have forgiven us and how much you have helped us. And Lord, will you help us too, Lord, not, not to add into a spiral of hatred, but understand what it is to be able to love and to forgive. Lord, in a culture where disagreeing is often equated with hating someone, Lord, will you help us to speak a message, Lord, of your repentance with real love and grace, that people may hear the possibility of what it would mean to turn to you. And will you give us the delight in seeing that? Father, we bring the very little we have in our hands and we want to put it in yours. And we want to pray, Father, that you would take that little and multiply it many times over for your kingdom's sake and for your name's sake, not ours. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.